July of 2016, I was at Wanderlust Festival in Aspen, and they had a prayer wheel there, this beautiful, beautiful prayer wheel. And they had a sheet of paper in front of our maps, and after we heard the story being shared and we did our yoga practice, we were invited to allow compassion to come into our lives and you know, whether that be in forgiveness or letting go, how can we be more compassionate? And to write something down on that sheet of paper that we want to send into the prayer wheel to give compassion to. Maybe it's a person, an event, forgiveness, whatever it is. And, you know, I didn't even think about it. And tears just started flowing from my eyes. And I wrote something along the lines. Kevin Lee Francois, I forgive you. Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. So the two-year anniversary of this podcast is coming up just next week, and in a moment of melancholic nostalgia, I went down memory lane and re-listened to one of the very first podcast episodes. It's about forgiveness, and since there are so many new listeners now, I thought this particular episode from August 2018 deserved to be re-aired. The voice that we heard at the top of the show is from Ashley Spence. Today, we hear her heart-wrenching story and her journey to forgiveness. Now, in church, in school, and at home, we're taught to forgive. Forgive our sisters for stealing our Halloween candy. Forgive our political leaders for their many indiscretions. There is something almost American about giving people a second chance. Forgiveness is a centerpiece of virtually every religion. It's baked into Catholicism on a weekly basis. We confess our sins and God will forgive us. Wayne Dyer often said, the angels we wish to attract into our lives will appear when they recognize themselves in us. But does that mean in order to cultivate our divine nature, we need to forgive everyone, including Hitler, Pinochet, Osama bin Laden? Can we kind of just selectively forgive? And does forgiveness let people off the hook for their injustices? Now, Dr. Robert Enright is one of the world's experts on forgiveness. He's actually devoted his whole professional life to its study. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin and is an author of many books, including Forgiveness is a Choice and A Forgiving Life, A Path to Overcoming Resentment and a Legacy of Love. I asked Robert, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is one of the moral virtues like justice, patience, kindness. And the basic idea 
of the moral virtues is to give goodness of some kind. With justice, it's giving what's deserved. If you tell me to build a wall for $100 and I do so, it's fair to get the 100 The particular area of forgiveness is unique among the virtues, in that it is offering goodness to those who have not been good to you. So in all likelihood, I think it's the hardest of all the virtues and probably the most heroic when people choose to do so and they should never be forced into it. So there, I think there are a lot of people that really want to forgive but have a hard time doing it. Um, and I'm wondering if there are techniques that you can suggest um, that help people with that ability to cultivate forgiveness. Here's the gist. First of all, you have to realize you have been treated unfairly by others. Sometimes that's not as easy as you think because you don't want to say, oh, they have that much power over me to be unjust and to hurt me. And so first we have to break any denial that's there and say, yes, they have been treating me unfairly, and yes, I'm hurt. Then we realize that it's not so much the injustice that leads to complication, but our reaction to the injustice. So we explore what is happening in the person's life after the injustice. And here's some of the things that can happen. You get bitter. You get tired. You get preoccupied with what happened. You can dream about it. It doesn't let you go. And so here we have the situation of first examining the effects of the injustice on the person that are negative. This then becomes motivation to try something. You might develop a good jogging program or meditation or talk to a friend or a counselor. And one option on the table can be forgiving the person who has hurt you. But this one is not so readily seen as reasonable because it is paradoxical. Again, you had asked me at the beginning of the program, what's the definition? And I said, it's being good to those who aren't being good to you. And so the question becomes here, well, why do I do that? And people examine that they're not excusing or condoning. They may or may not reconcile. To forgive doesn't automatically mean to reconcile. You don't throw justice under the bus, but you strive for fairness when you forgive. And with all those three ideas in place, you're not excusing, you're not necessarily reconciling, you're not abandoning justice. Do you want to try and be good to those who aren't good to you because you often are the ones who want who benefits? And then we get into the work of forgiving. And the work of forgiving first is to start cognitively because it's easier to think about the other than to feel certain feelings toward them. And so we try to, what we say, have a wide-angle lens on who this person is. Are they wounded themselves through their pain and their misfortune and their frustration? Have they placed that onto you? 
In other words, do you see someone who is vulnerable and hurting? Do you see their humanity, the same humanity that you have? Uh, do you see them more even in a broader spiritual perspective that we're all on this planet together and it's a tough place and we have to all pull together somehow even when they might not want to they at least have the potential and so as you see the person with this new lens that can over time soften the heart toward the other person as you see them as wounded or confused and a shared humanity but in a certain brokenness and then that small sense of compassion, which is a, a, a softening of the heart toward the other, can then lead to a strengthening of the one who forgives. And then we ask people to consider, only after they've done some of this cognitive work and allowed the emotions to soften a little bit, do we ask the person to stand in the pain or bear the pain of what happened. In other words, you don't throw what happened to you back to that person or to anybody else. And when people can make that decision to stand in the pain, they realize two things. They're stronger than they thought they were. And once they see that, they realize they can be a conduit of good, not passing their pain to future generations, let's say with their own children. So that can be a, itself a transformational point of beginning of the healing of the heart. But only after all that is accomplished do we then ask the person to truly exercise forgiveness on its highest level, which is to think about, only when you're ready, giving a gift to the one who hurt you which might be a smile, a returned email, or a kind word about them to another, or if you have no contact with the person, or even if they're deceased, you can, for example, donate to charity in their name. And all of this, then, helps the person to heal emotionally, where they start finding new meaning in their suffering. They've discovered a journey of healing. They're more sensitive to other people's suffering. They develop a new purpose in life. And then as they start ending this journey, at least for the first time in this forgiving, which can continue for many, many months or years, the person realizes that they are lighter inside. They might have less anxiety, less anger, less depression, more hope for the future. And you know who they end up liking? themselves right. because we find many people who are crushed by others insensitivity oftentimes begin believing the lie and they start saying about themselves how bad they are well forgiveness helps you recover your own self-worth so on some on some level it sounds like you're saying that being betrayed um that might generate feelings of vengefulness or anger. Um, but that idea might be, in the end, your greatest teacher. Because on yeah. some level, it can send you, um, if, uh, if you apply some of these principles that you're talking about, um, on a journey to, in some ways, cultivate your better angels. That's exactly correct, Jeff. 
you begin to see that the suffering is not for nothing. I am growing as a human being. Now, that doesn't mean we seek out suffering. We have to be careful with what we mean here. But suffering inevitably comes to all of us. And the question is, how can I use this? How can I learn from this? How can I actually become stronger as a person because I have suffered? Okay, I want to give you an example of extraordinary forgiveness. On the evening of June 17, 2015, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old domestic terrorist and white supremacist, entered the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed nine African Americans during a prayer service. Now, shortly thereafter, family members of the victims were given the opportunity to address Roof in court. And in an emotional testimony, Nadine Collier, who lost her mother, Ethel Lance, publicly forgave Ruth. I just want everybody to know, to you, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. And I forgive you. Is everyone deserved of forgiveness? And does forgiveness allow wrongdoers to shirk their accountability? Well, first of all, we have to be very gentle when we have deep tragedies like this, with the people who are left behind regarding whether they will forgive or will not forgive. So my counsel would be, let us not condemn those who will not forgive because it's their choice and they might not be ready and they may never be ready. And they've been through a lot and we are not inside their broken heart. And even if others forgive, we never should hold out the judgment, okay, now it's your turn. I think that's a misuse of forgiveness. It puts pressure on people. It is not actually the problem of forgiveness. It's people's misunderstanding of what it is. Forgiveness is the choice of the one wronged, not somebody else's judgment. At the same time, we should not condemn those who do forgive and say, what are you doing? He doesn't deserve it. You're out of bounds. You have to stop that. Well, just because one person might not be ready doesn't mean that's true for the other. So my take-home message here is, let us be gentle either way. Now, with that in mind, uh, how about with the Nickel Mines tragedy in Pennsylvania with the Amish girls? Mm, They were lined up execution style. The Amish did, in fact, as a community, forgive. They went to his funeral and started... uh, like a scholarship program for the children. On October 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts entered a schoolhouse in the Amish community of Nickel Mines. He took 10 girls between the ages of 6 and 13 hostage, shot 8, and killed 5 before committing suicide. 
Robert's mother's initial impulse was to immediately move away, but parents of the victims came to her house the very night of the shooting and urged her to stay. Even victims' families attended her son's funeral. But obviously, when you see what happened with the Methodist church in Charleston, when you see what happened with the Amish, some people do, in fact, forgive those who commit such atrocities that are almost unfathomable. So yes, some people do say they deserve forgiveness. At the same time, as you and I have been discussing in this podcast, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation, and forgiveness does not throw justice under the bus. One of the biggest misconceptions of forgiveness is this. When you forgive, you no longer can exercise the moral virtue of justice. Hmm. Well, who, whose rule book is that? Whoever said that? If someone said that, I, I want to throw that rule book out because it's wrong. It's, it's the wrong rule. Let's not listen to that rule book. You can and should exercise many virtues at the same time. In fact, my great teacher, Aristotle, from 2,000 years ago, has taught me that you never pr practice any of the moral virtues in isolation from the others, or else it gets distorted. So if all I do is forgive, the distortion is going to be, I might think, well, now I have no recourse. I cannot seek justice. And that is a complete misunderstanding of forgiveness. So forgive, get rid of the excess baggage in your heart, get rid of the rust of resentment and hatred that could actually kill you, and then be free to find the right kind of justice. Because as we know, when we're fuming, sometimes what we think is justice is revenge. Right. And so if we practice justice alongside forgiveness, maybe we'll even have a better justice. But let's not throw justice away. In 2012, I got an email from a woman named Ashley Spence. She had come to the Wanderlust Festival in Squaw Valley, and it had changed her life, and she was determined to open a Wanderlust yoga studio in Austin, Texas. So I traveled to Austin and met Ashley and heard her vision. And almost six years later, Wanderlust Austin is one of the most successful yoga studios in Texas. But I didn't know the story behind the story until she called me last year and told me. It was August of 2003, and I was 19 years old, about to begin my sophomore year at Arizona State University, and I went to school about a week before it was supposed to start, just to get to know my new roommate, and we had moved into a new apartment complex, and I just, I vividly remember it was a warm Arizona summer night, and, you know, the sun was setting, and I was out on my patio, and I remember being on the phone with my mom and I just like felt in the deepest pit of my gut that something was off and that something wasn't right. And it was so deep and strong that I really didn't even want to hang up the phone. And I ended up hanging up and going on with my night. And without going into too much detail, 
that night when I was asleep in the middle of the night, an intruder broke into my apartment, came into my room, and I was violently raped and assaulted and nearly killed. Um, the entire time, I just wasn't able to see. There was a pillow over my face, so I couldn't see the monster that was assaulting. But, um, you know, I survived through, and I did it very well in the beginning. You know, it, at first I was like, I'm going to persevere, and this person cannot stop me. My life will not stop. And so a week later, I tried to go to class. I went into my first class, I sat down and within a minute I had a really severe panic attack and I ran out just sobbing. I mean, at this point I still didn't know who my perpetrator was. Like, was he in class behind me? I couldn't sleep at night and I couldn't even do simple things like wash my face because that would mean for a brief moment, my eyes would be closed. Like the fear was paralyzing. And so eventually, you know, the persevering and trying to move on just didn't work. I had to drop out of school and I decided to move to California. I wanted to start fresh, but what that did, the numbing, the suppression, the anger, living in silence, like it took me down a really, really dangerous path. I was numbing every emotion that I possibly had with massive amounts of alcohol, with Xanax, marijuana. I mean, anything you can imagine. And, you know, numbing, numbing, numbing. I thought that I could start new, but really... I almost took my own life in that way. I was being so self-destructive. In a way, do you think, was, was it like you were trying to kind of forget it in a way, just numb it so it would just kind of go away? Yeah, numb it. And I thought, you know, when I moved, I had the intention, like, I don't want to be a victim anymore. Like in Arizona, I was working day and night with detectives and everyone on campus knew what happened, you know, and I was no longer Ashley in my eyes. I felt like that was broken and I was seen as this victim. And so part of my move to California was like, you know what? I'm just going to forget all about that because there were no leads. It was a cold case. And so I was like, I'm just going to start fresh and no one's going to know. And I'm just going to be me. I'm just Ashley, you know? And, and it was really dangerous because there was so much that I wouldn't process. I wouldn't even allow myself to feel. So just numb out, you know, and avoid. I thought that was the answer. When horrible injustices happen and you know, we get so angry and we hold so much anger um, that it's kind of like you're like you're you have an ember in your hand, and it's like you're looking at, for someone or something or anything to kind of throw it at. Um, but then mm -hmm. it's sort of like you're the one getting burned, you know, and it's totally and it's not anything you did. It's just that this horrible confluence of things made life that right. way. Did you ever kind of in those years, kind of right after the incident, ever think that you could forgive your assailant? Did that ever kind of come to mind? Oh, gosh, no, no. You know, not only did it not cross my mind, like I had it in my mind, in my heart, that I would never. And I would hear stories and I would see like people on the news, for example, and it would be a mom that had just tragically lost a child to a murder. And I would see them speaking forgiveness. And I just couldn't comprehend that. I, I was like, why would they even want to? And how, 
how could you ever forgive someone that could do something so horrific and so tragic and horrible? And so, no, like, not only did I not think that I could, like, I never, to be honest, even desired to. Like, I had it in my mind I never, ever would. And so then, kind of what happened? You know, thank thank God I I found yoga in the beginning. You know, after I went down that that kind of scary path, I I found yoga and I found my practice. I found a safe space, literally, to start to heal. I got back on my feet. I took my life back, you know, and I realized, like, wait, maybe I am whole. Maybe I have everything I need. Maybe no one's ever taken my power because guess what? They can't. That's actually embedded in me and my soul. You know, yoga brought that light out for me. And my life got on a better path. I ended up moving back to Austin, where I'm from. And, you know, I was so blessed to be able to open a wonderless yoga studio, which changed my whole life. And I had a son, which also changed my whole life. And it was in 2010 that I received a call out of the blue that there had been a DNA match and there had been an arrest in my case. And I mean, this was seven years later. I just remember I was so shocked and relieved that this man could not be doing it to anybody else because that was always on my mind and in my heart. And then, to be honest, I was I was also angry. Like, why now? Why does this have to happen right now? And I have worked so hard to get where I am. And this isn't fair. You know, it brought it all back and it magnified it and intensified it because I never really dealt with it. So that was in 2010, so seven years later. And then trial actually didn't end up happening for five more years. So it was just a lot of waiting. And, you know, that struggle was really hard, just the waiting and the unknown. And, you know, in that time I had my son, and then it was right after my son was born, he wasn't even a year old, that I found out trial is happening. It's happening May of 2015, and there's not more any more delays or setbacks. And, you know, honestly, at that moment, I thought of every excuse why I couldn't go. Right. I said, I can't be detached from my son. You know, he needs me right now. There's no way I can leave. And I have a business. And I'm so sorry. I just, I can't. And what I realized was all those were excuses because I was terrified. Yeah. To have to face this person, you know, eye to eye, to be in the same room again, to relive it all. I just, I didn't think I was strong enough. And I thought, you know, I've gotten this far in my life. Like, I can just keep going. I don't even want to deal with this. But I found out surprisingly that I was pregnant with my second child just around this time that I found out. And, you know, with my firstborn, we didn't want to find out the sex. So that was a surprise. And, Something in me this time was just like, you know, I want to find out. And I will never forget the moment opening up the doctor's letter and it just said, like, you're having a baby girl. And my heart just, like, cracked open. And I thought at that moment, like, oh, my God, Ashley, pull it together. Like, yes, you're going back. You're not going back for you. Like, you're going back for your daughter and every person's daughter. Right. And their mothers and their sisters and their friends, like, you're going back, you know? And so at that moment, it was crystal clear, like, I'm going to trial. So I went to trial, pregnant with my daughter, um, was flying back and forth and was forced to testify, to 
face this man, to relive every 911 call, every photo, every picture, you know, and go through all of that. And there was a lot of darkness that came with that. And in the same sense, which I think yoga helped me to realize, like, there was so much light. And I had a victim advocate next to me who would hold my hand and wipe my tears. I was a complete stranger, and her name was Rhonda, and she supported me, you know. And the prosecutor who worked tirelessly day and night, the detectives that never gave up on my case, the nurse that did my forensic examinations throughout. Like, there was just so much love and lightness that if I hadn't gone through all that dark, I don't know if I would have seen. So it was really, really challenging, and trial went on for a long time, but I decided like, I can't be here though for the months that it was going on. So I flew back home and I wanted to be back with my son after I did my part and be back with the business. And one day I was walking into work and I received a call from my prosecutor and I'll just never forget the sound in his voice when he told me, Ashley, he's guilty. From there, it was one whole other year before sentencing. So it was a long time. And so sentencing ended up happening in May of 2016. And I went back for my final impact statement. And on May 20th of that year, Kevin Lee Francois was sentenced to nearly 138 years for all of the heinous acts and crimes he committed against me. 138 years. So, I mean, I heard that and I just sobbed. I felt liberated, you know? There was, there was some closure there. Yeah, yeah. So, did you ever find that place um, despite all of the depravity and all of the injustice did you ever find that place inside yourself that could forgive this monster you know it's funny because I didn't really realize it was happening as it was unfolding if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, it was kind of a slower progression it at the final sentencing I arrived at court and the first thing my prosecutor said to me was, Ashley, this man's family's here. And I just began to weep and shake. And, you know, in a way it was like my biggest nightmare because it really humanized him as a person. It took it away from just me to like, wow, this monster is actually a human being and he has a family, you know, it was really, really emotional. And I was terrified when he said that. But he called me and he was like, no, they're here for you in support of you. And they want to know if it would be okay if they could come talk to you. And I said, yes. And I, I'll never forget the moment, like hugging and embracing his sisters and his nieces and nephews. And we just exchanged to each other, like how sorry we were for one another crying in each other's arms. Um, 
even his own sister made an impact statement that day to keep her brother behind bars for the rest of his life. His own sister. So, you know, that moment of connection and um, compassion in a way, I think, began to lift some of this anger and gave me a little bit more compassion in a way. Yeah, it's like that forgiveness, I think, is a gift that you were giving, but in a way it was a gift that you were also giving yourself, even if you didn't totally realize it. Right, completely. It freed up so much that I didn't even know that was within me. And it was from that place of compassion that I got really inspired to use my story to share and do something bigger than myself. You know, in a way, like, I'm so fortunate because I did get that closure. So many people don't. And I'm able to share my story. And so many people live in silence. And I don't want that. Like, everybody deserves to be heard. Everyone deserves to be believed and listened to. And by forgiving and opening up that space, it gave me clarity that this is a path I want to really go down. Not only share yoga in the way of healing, because for me, it's just one way, but for me, it, it saved my life, you know, yoga, meditation, teacher training, all of those things. And also just getting the courage to share my story because it wasn't coming from a place of anger or shame. Like it's more of a place of compassion, trying to connect with one another. And I want to hear other people's stories and I want other people to share and I want other people to be heard. And I don't know if, if I would have been able to do this or take this path without forgiving actually. Ashley Spence has gone on to found Rising Voices, a platform for women to share their stories and build community. She is lecturing around the country. There are ways to to persevere and to get through, and you have everything you need within you, you know? And it's just letting go of the anger and the fear, and it's a process, a lifelong one. But when you do, it opens up to so much more, I believe. So this is what we've learned about forgiveness. While forgiveness is a gift that you can give someone else, it's also a gift that you give yourself. It cleanses you of the toxicity of anger. And through forgiveness, you can live more fully in your divine nature. You become lighter, more creative, and more optimistic. Secondly, there's a distinction between forgiveness and justice. You can forgive someone and still pursue justice and hold people accountable as Ashley did, and as did the victims of Dylan Roof. That's it from The Commune for this week. Please subscribe to The Commune Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next week.